Hello listeners and welcome to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, I'm they them, and with me as always is Dorothy, who is she her. Hello. And we are back after a year? Is two years now? I think it's just a year. I don't know. But it's time. Welcome to This is the Podcast on Vaccine Brain, and the exciting follow-up to This is the Podcast on COVID. Regardless, several years back, we did Magic Mike XXL. I had never actually seen the first one, so Dorothy had been planning to show it to me anyway, and when we got to it, we realized there's some there there. Yeah, um, I had actually seen this film in the theaters when it came out, and this is... Definitely a movie that benefits from having a sequel. <laughs> Shall we? It's the rare reverse case where the sequel improves the first one by yeah. existing. Um, yeah, we thought this might be a fun stop off uh, before we move into uh, Pride Month. And also a fitting follow up to Showgirls. That too. So for those of you who may not remember because it's been nine years now oh my god (laughs) magic mike is a 2012 movie directed by steven soderbergh it is about the titular magic mike who is (laughs) uh, a male exotic dancer who lives in florida and works tampa excuse me tampa florida specifically and this florida man works at an all-male strip review at kind of a uh, down and out sort of club you know, heading for 30, and he's really trying to get a business going, but because it's 2012, the economy is in the shitter, and it's kind of about these quiet lives of desperation, and how he feels trapped in this profession that is, you know, both elated and degraded, and doesn't necessarily have a future once he becomes old, quote-unquote. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also about how he's sort of recruiting a new a new person into the troupe that character is the kid or adam played by alex pettifer a lot of the reason this movie exists is because the lead channing tatum actually did used to be a stripper when he was around 19 or so he's building off a lot of his own personal experiences with it that said he is not the one in full creative control of the piece. Yeah, no. The screen... And I don't think it is... It is not autobiographical as such. Uh, yeah, It's I think... experiential rather than autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Which there seems to be some muddying around the legend of the film in that regard. Mm. Obviously, for one thing, he got out of the business long before he reached this age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the credited screenwriter is Reed Carolyn who doesn't have that many screenwriting credits, uh, a film coming up in 2022. And also he actually wrote Magic Mike XXL as well. Which is surprising, right? <laughs> it's amazing the difference that a director can have. Yeah, because XXL was directed by whomst? Magic Mike XXL was directed by Gregory Jacobs, who uh, is not as known for things shall we say (laughs) which is a shame i mean magic mike xxl is not an ambitiously directed film but it is an extremely competently it's competently directed i honestly think that a lot of its dance sequences are a little more ambitious and interesting visually than this that's true um so this is directed by steven soderbergh a lot of you are probably familiar with his work from his you know, Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, Thirteen era of his work. But he also started out as sort of one of the really indie mumblecore voices of the 90s. And that really shows with this film. It feels like he's sort of trying to go back to that and also slap sort of a 70s aesthetic on top of it. Which makes it very weird that the movie was marketed the way it was. So the marketing around this movie, I would actually be very curious to see what a kid 
not a kid, like not somebody who wasn't around when it came out or wasn't paying attention when it came out and what they took from this film. Because I think so much of the audience reaction to it was colored by the fact that the trailers heavily, heavily spotlighted the strip sequences and the audience specifically. Back at the time, it was heavily marketed as sort of a hen party type movie. Like, ooh, sexy dudes that you get to ogle, but you don't actually have to go to a strip club situation for straight women. And it was presented as, like, just this fun objectification fest. And I think they were sort of trying to stick a net out in the water and scoop up some of the sort of twi-mom demographic. Definitely. And it so it feels very weird when you actually sit down and watch the movie and where there's this... like less than ten minutes of those scenes in total in an almost two hour film, right? And it's very much sort of a straight dance film, really. Yeah, a, a straight dance film that is very uninterested in its dancing. Uh huh. And has one dancer, <laughs> which is true to life. <laughs> yeah, I bl- I may have told this story on the podcast last time we covered and Magic Mike, but I have been to one male uh, strip show in my life and it was the case where there was one former Chippendales dancer who was extremely talented um, and really Chris Farley right? (laughs) Yeah (laughs) so beautiful and such a talent but who like had that charisma and knew how to sell like eroticism in addition to just being in shape and good looking and having like this technical moves Mm -hmm. and then also there, there were a bunch of other guys who were just jacked and knew how to kind of gyrate their hips uh, at the patrons, which, you know what? Good for them. Get that money. But there was a noticeable gulf. Yeah. And I mean, Tatum, number one, you can tell that he's danced for money before, but also he's very good at it. And he, that was his sort of entree into Hollywood was doing dance films. He started out in Step Up. Boy, is this film poignant in regards to to Tatum's career in hindsight, huh? His career has been all up and down, but I just, I really like it. He's got a nice charisma and it's also just a great example of how I really think he is the modern Patrick Swayze. Like, I think that that's the clearest sort of um, corollary in terms of actors who have this really strong physicality, this really positive energy, and these technical dance skills that put him in a position to, like, combine that charisma around. So this would be sort of his dirty dancing. Yeah, kind of, which I still haven't... How do I... (laughs) There's truly... You some love, unforgivable. You love dancing, and yet there's all these dance movies that I have from not the 80s. seen. A crime <laughs> against nature. A crime against myself. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. He's got a bit of the Brendan Fraser to him too, in terms of just like likable. Yeah, guys. likable himbo. Like he's mm-hmm. got that himbo energy. Mm-hmm. And he and Fraser both sort of suffered career derailing personal life stuff him not to quite the same extent (laughs) i mean tatum apparently also was assaulted and that's part of the reason in addition to wanting to focus on his marriage so he stepped away from uh from acting for a while and when he came back they had just kind of shut him out and unfortunately he and his wife ended up uh parting ways so, you know, Even hopefully after. amicably, but, but, you know, and she's a dancer too, so. Oh, interesting. He's in that movie that the Magic Mike uh, screenwriter just finished writing. So it seems like he's kind of starting to make a comeback a little bit in the industry, which is heartening. So at least there's, there's sort of a happy end at this point, which goes well with that whole, the sequel made this movie much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's still working with a lot of the same people who were involved in this movie. You know, it it seems like he's got a crew. Hindsight is so interesting with this movie, given that... Because you were mentioning off mic that you didn't care for this movie when when you saw it in theaters. I did not. 
And part of that is because of that marketing and also because of just the experience I had when I saw it in the theater, which was that I got kind of dragged to see it by um, a group of older women. Yeah, Sean's mother and his aunt and their sort of lady social circle. I, I can't so- imagine seeing this movie with in-laws. I truly can't. Uh-huh. It dragged me along for it to be like the girly bonding experience and it was very awkward (laughs) because this is a quiet lives of desperation movie yeah and also just because some people like to talk about film the way you know you do i do probably most of our audience likes to talk about film some people don't some people don't give a shit about that (laughs) some people feel about film which is fine but it can be frustrating if you're coming at it from different angles yeah and it's just those different conversations are weird. <laughs> Plus, they all wanted to get smashed beforehand. And Did they like it? I'm not sure how much they remembered. <laughs> Fair. It's like, it's a very depressing movie, and it hates the audience. It does. Like, that's the other thing, is it's doing that thing where, fuck you for showing up to see this. Now, there are two wolves inside me. <laughs> there's, the, there's the one that loves Spec Ops The Line. Uh, loves pieces of media that lure you in and then say fuck you and these genre conventions but except you also hate things that do that it's tr- i hate things that are extremely smug about how they're better than the audience yes it's a very delicate matter of yeah what's your framing. thoughts on cabin in the woods fuck that movie and fuck joss whedon for Jeff. separate reasons. For separate reasons. Yes, besides the fact that he's a shit human being. I also like I also hate his work. Uh yeah, I guess it yeah, the other part of me is like mm, this feels a bit like misogyny. And that's sort of part of the crux of it and it's one of the things that I think is hugely improved by the existence of the sequel. At the time when it came out, there were a lot of think pieces about how we really shouldn't be celebrating this movie because, you know, it's it's got this ton of undercurrents of objectification of women and uh and the misogyny and the um the undercurrents of toxic masculinity and i think that all of that is not unintentional or unthought out i think a lot of that is very deliberate but this movie doesn't do anything with it whereas the sequel really works to unpack a lot of the bullshit that's set up in this and i do think that there is value in pointing out that women can be shitty to men. Mm-hmm. Like, the scenes with Olivia Munn's character are maybe some of the best parts of this movie. Uh-huh. Like, those she parts can't hit. fucking act, but... <laughs> no, but she's, but she's she there and she's going through it. just so cruel. Yeah. so uncomfortable and dehumanizing. Yeah, so there is a subplot with her character where she is sex friends with Mike. They hook up twice. And like, she- let's be clear. They hook up twice. And he is clearly very... You know what? That's not even fair. He he seems to think that they are friends and maybe he's feeling invested in it as the start of a relationship. But more importantly, she doesn't respect him as a person or as a friend. She sees him as a cute fling before she gets married to her actual fiance. Well, and also there's a dehumanizing element to how she's interacting with him specifically from a classist standpoint. Because her character is like wrapping up grad school and is doing her thesis on stripping and and exotic dancing and and that labor um and she's a psychologist and so like she's crossing all of these boundaries at once and yet even though she's supposedly doing this work which would involve you know insight into people she still sees him as just this dumb object to fuck and clearly her fiance doesn't give a shit (laughs) Because it's not real people. So there's this very big classist element to it. The economics in this movie are really interesting. Boy, is it a snapshot of the time. But at the same time, even though it wants to have this subplot about how, you know, he gets burned by this relationship, I think it's also relevant that the only reason he started, like, pursuing Mun's character and actually trying to turn it into a relationship is because it was a way for him to display his functionality to the actual love interest, Brooke, 
played by Cody Horn. Now, Brooke is the sister of Alex Pettifer's character, the kid. She's his older sister. And it's a very unconvincing dynamic present. Like, this heterosexual relationship is not super useful, (laughs) except as sort of his ticket out. I haven't actually seen Horn in anything else. It could be just that this role was not tenable or that the direction didn't work for her because, again, this movie is so profoundly uninterested in its women. But whatever the reason, this is not a successful performance. And I can see how it would have been in the script. I can see the layers of how this is a character who, separate from Mun, is also this economically you know, disadvantage a poorer character trying to scrape her way through school as well. And all of a sudden income Yeah, but she's not rich like Mon. She didn't right. do this. She's she's more on the same economic level. So she's this very angry character because all of a sudden her brother is sleeping on her couch and she's being expected to support him while he kicks in nothing to the to the household and doesn't seem to care about what she's got going on at all. She's doing all the emotional labor for him. I can see yeah, on and paper. He, and and her shitty brother, you know, had a scholarship, a sports scholarship, and just decided not to. And So, like, I can see how she would be this sort of ball of rage. And there's also some interesting lines where she where she does the I'm not cooking breakfast for you thing where we're supposed to read her as like this being a frustration at misogyny she's experienced. But then the movie does the thing where, what? I didn't expect you to cook breakfast for me. It's so silly for you to be all feminist about this thing. So it doesn't actually grant her. Horn has okay chemistry with uh, Tatum in like the scenes where they're meant to be friendly and flirting. Like when they go have beers at the pier, they they have a nice kind of warmth in those individual scenes, which makes it all the more jarring when the 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 angrier more complex scenes come around yeah because she doesn't hold on to that in those those angry scenes and so she comes off as really cold a lot of the time and not in a closed off way right plus she just does a lot of shaming just just a lot of shaming of sex work and it's a very stripping and they had to make her homophobic but like fake, not homophobic, but homophobic because she assumes that the minute her brother comes home with, with some thongs that he must be gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that is uh-huh. the strong energy here. It's an extremely complex role that is also totally thankless. So I can't even blame her for being totally lost with it. Yeah, but I mean, even the first time I watched it, I found myself frustrated with how the performance wasn't paying off what was clearly supposed to be happening. Yeah, it is the crux of the movie in many ways, her character and her relationship with Mike. And it's just not rewarding at all, which it has to be for the movie to work. Yeah, and if I had to guess, I would bet that she was just severely underdirected. Mm-hmm. compared to everyone else. Like, I feel like she didn't get the, the attention from the director that would be necessary to to develop that. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with Soderbergh's work. I think the only other movie of his that I've seen is Aaron Brockovich, which was the first R-rated film that Baby Vry ever saw, because <laughs> it's basically a PG-13 movie, except that they say fuck a bunch, and I think you see some boobs. You got to see that extremely feminist bra. It is a good bra. It's a good bra. The Fran Drescher fan in me loves that bra. (laughs) That Aaron Brockovich is from that extremely 2000s girl power. We're kind of figuring out third wave feminism in the movies, a little bit movement that we can talk about another day. But (laughs) yeah, I am a little bit more familiar with Soderbergh. I'm familiar with a lot of his earliest work and also with how he sort of chameleoned himself in the 90s, over the course of the 90s into the 2000s, into this very bankable director doing these sort of big ensemble, everybody's in him things. And he does tend to carry over certain performers from project to project, like Julia Roberts from Aaron Brockovich to the Ocean series 
he did traffic, which and then dragged Brad Pitt over into the Ocean series. And so but he's a director who started out doing these very sort of almost stagey character pieces with very little money. You know, as one does. As one does, yes. When he started out in the indie scene, one of his um, his first actual feature-length film, I used to have it on tape. And that was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Which is this very southern-accented movie about, about distance and perspective and lying and consent and sex. And it's very fucking bad is the thing. James Spader is in it and it's extremely hot, but it's a movie that doesn't understand a lot of the ramifications that it's juggling around. And so it's kind of really traumatic to watch how it resolves the problem that it thinks it has, as opposed to the problems that you're actually seeing the characters have, if you have a more nuanced perspective. And part of that, if I recall your secondhand descriptions, and I will watch this movie someday. You will. I will. I want to see James Spader being a hot. He's he's an attractive man and it continues to baffle me. I mean, you don't have to watch that one to see him being hot. No, but it's one I, I already watched Secretary, so. <laughs> but part of that is down to gender dynamics, isn't it? it? It is partly down to gender dynamics, but a lot of that movie is about sort of female sexual agency and repulsion and consent and the idea of performative sexuality as a way to to express sexuality while not feeling pressured and stuff but at the same time it's doing some really disturbing things with asexuality and that it doesn't know it's doing gotcha upsetting yeah it's really upsetting on a whole but he so he's always had a certain interest in a lot of these low-key elements and i mean years later he would do um the girlfriend experience in 2009 so three years before this where sasha gray plays a full service sex worker in new york city who is like taking clients and trying to get a good review from a, a critic on a website if I recall the hubbub around that, she kind of got put out in the cold on that movie because Soderbergh directed her to be deliberately very flat and people thought it was just her not being able to act. Right, because they assumed that because she had been doing pornography before, she never learned to act. Right. And so Soderbergh was asking her for this very flat performance and then... I do not recall him coming to her defense. Now that's possibly... I wasn't just lo- I wasn't looking in the right place. But but I think that's relevant to what we see in Horn's performance mm-hmm. in this. Like, I think that her performance as, as Brooke has that same problem. That there is this flatness to her affect that he may be directing into these actresses to say, I don't want a sex pop performance. I want you to be t- hard and tough. And so it's taking out a level of... Mm-hmm. Of empathy. And I think the script is actually, maybe I'm reading it charitably because I know this dude also wrote XXL, but I think the script is trying not to do a good woman, bad woman thing because she is clearly written to be attracted to and appreciative of his body and their sexual chemistry there. But at the same time, in in direction, it's definitely good woman, bad woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the director is fighting the script. It's even, you know, you've got a blonde versus a brunette. But is this the part where we talk about the biphobia or not? Oh, <laughs> it's not quite as bad as the uh, the hell lighting lowest point moment in shame where he gives a butt blowjob and it's the worst, <laughs> it's his lowest point. <laughs> the darkest thing. But it's not, not, not that. that. Yeah, Matt Bomer is in this movie and is supposedly the only bisexual guy in this. You have to have your eyes fully closed to believe that, but okay. Yeah, and part of the problem with this film is that it does focus on this whole idea that stripping and sex work are this sort of 
invitation into a downward spiral of life-ruining shame and drugs and and sexual license and threesomes god damn it yeah the, the shaming of threesomes is so wild it really is yeah the, there is a twin narrative here of mike trying to get a loan for his businesses so he can go legit and stop stripping because he saved all this money but no one will give him a loan because his credit shit and meanwhile the kid is a shithead is a shithead like that's the frustrating thing is i don't give a fuck about him there's nope. a reason they write him out of the second movie because <laughs> he sucks he sucks but he, he he's having substance abuse problems and and he's bad at keeping the necessary boundaries with clients and is in general just going you know full spin out depravity and the moment that kicks that off is him having a threesome with the bisexual character and his wife his abusive swinging wife it's so much and also another bad girl mm-hmm. with colorful hair who <laughs> and there's a storm raging outside y'all yep there's a hurricane happening as they do it as he descends to hell <sighs> Oh my god. Because it's Florida, so they're having a hurricane party because that's what Floridians do. And it's so weird because it's like, he's young, he's dumb, he's, as they say, full of cum. Ridiculously so. Like, he is at the absolute height of his physical perfection, and so it's understandable why this would seem like a series of fun decisions. Mm-hmm. But he also sucks, like, as a person, and the fact that the narrative needs him around in order to do this foiling against Mike as the older, wiser guy, but he's not. <laughs> and meanwhile, you have Satan over here in his snakeskin vest. McConaughey is doing some shit. I have always known that Matthew McConaughey was kind of stupid as shit but capable of very good performances. I'm very irritated that he has refused to shut the fuck up in the past year or so. So now I can't even, like, put that out of my head. Uh And enjoy the fact that he's a pretty good actor because he's just increasingly loudly a shit person. Yeah. So that sucks, but he plays Dallas. He he runs the troupe and manages the venue and takes a cut of everybody's profits. And Mike is... For some reason, some godforsaken reason, Mike genuinely believes that when they uh, move to a new, bigger club down in Miami and really take their show out there, he'll get a cut and he'll be respectable and just one of the businessmen here and that Dallas won't fuck him. Spoiler alert. Dallas plans to fuck him. Mm -hmm. Not sexually. Like, probably sexually, but in a very heterosexual way. But so he's this sort of evil Svengali figure, just seducing all of these young men into this life of hedonism that he profits off of. Which, to the movie's most minor credit, he's good. He is good. And also, he's not really queer coded at all. He's got like, he's like the peak toxic masculinity with the fucking cowboy boots and his, the whole, his raw boned, hairy look and the shitty, unwashed hair. He's like the second best dancer in this, too. Like, he's not great. The dance sequences are fine. They don't have, like you said- The worst dancer is Pettifer. The second worst is Matt Bomer. The sequel was very smart to give him gimmick numbers. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. He has gimmick numbers in this. He does the Ken doll bit. You can barely barely tell because they rush through them so fast. Uh Uh-huh. The only dance number to that's worth writing home about in this movie is the one that's basically... The catharsis moment. Yeah, yeah, the same energy as Kevin Bacon's angry dance in Footloose. Yeah, or um, the the tryout sequence in Flashdance. Or even the training sequence in Flashdance. It's like that cathartic big ball of anguish inside Mike's chest and he can't do anything with it because he has no power, so he just has to dance it out. I love that moment. It's my favorite moment. It's so good and it gets me every time. And so I was delighted, despite how annoyed I was at at Uh that point. Yeah. And he's good. He's so talented. His joints are like so smooth. He's like made out of ball bearings or something. Let this man dance more. McConaughey is horrible. And he has these really 
sort of disturbing monologues and bits that where he's just putting together this system of reinforcing these guys' egos and getting them into this life through this feedback loop of toxic masculinity and misogyny of putting them in the position to objectify back outwards towards the audience which so that they don't feel consumed which is all the more fucked on the marketing's part that the speech he gives that opens the movie where he's laying down the rules of the club to the audience i see a lot of lawbreakers here Uh uh-huh every trailer yeah like he gives a speech about what you are not legally you can touch them they can't touch you Mm-hmm. Unless you be, they give you a big tip, then it's okay. Like, that is the thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it is literally just, these guys know one another. He and the guy. <laughs> he and Al. Yeah. They work together. Except Al has more heart. Which <laughs> is so fucked. The lock, uh, locker room, the, the dr- dressing room scenes in this are really good, though. I think that is where Soderbergh's background as an indie director really works, because it is this incredibly low-key kind of shitty one-upsmanship. Right, it's not girls shrieking and and yelling about how you stole my thong, mm-hmm. the way Showgirls has the, the dressing rooms as these sort of centers of extreme backstage drama, and then we don't take that out, stay, out there. Nah, it's just like, it's the break room. <laughs> extremely normalized toxic masculinity bullshit that you can see how it fucks with all of the bigger consequences later in the movie. I really liked those scenes. Mm-hmm. The toxic masculinity is what drives this movie in a lot of ways. Because at every point when the characters get to a situation where there's discomfort, there's this underlying vibe of they're around all their bros. So you can't puss out. Nobody can ever state a boundary or articulate a desire not to do something because nobody else has said it first. They can't be vulnerable that way. Which ties into that the other big speech that Dallas gives to the kid about, you know, you're fucking the audience, basically. You're the one with the dick. And it's... Really gross. And I think the uh, the movie knows that it's gross, but I'm not sure if it knows enough, you know? Yeah. So I think that's what the whole sequel is sort of working against, is sort of purging that energy. That That's why you have the, like, slap fight where nobody actually fights, because <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> the sequel is such a good restorative companion to this movie, because, like, it's... It's it's about all of them unpacking their shit and following their dreams and getting away from those quiet lives of desperation that made them all such assholes to each other. And this is how you positive masculinity. Yeah. And it's weird because the second movie has space for all of those characters to breathe a little bit and to have dreams and hopes and thoughts and goals. Whereas this movie really is using pretty much everyone else as window dressing. <sighs> Like, we get lines from all of the other characters, but they're not developed. We don't really see who they are or what they're about. They're just sort of there to be sad fuck-ups around Mike. Right. They don't have the same awareness, apparently, that he does, that this is a liminal space, and so we do not care about them. Yeah. Even when we see Big Dick Richie's sad dick. So glad that he found a wine aunt. <laughs> yeah, um, Andy McDowell was actually the female lead in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Oh, so when I say that he Come that together. Soderbergh carries characters around, I 100% believe that he's the connection to how they got Andy McDowell to play that role in that, even though he wasn't directing it. That makes sense. So, yeah, it's really weirdly dehumanizing of everybody else except Mike. It doesn't sort of give them credit for having as much internal life as he does, which is weird because a huge part of the point of this is that these sex workers have internal lives and thoughts and feelings and hopes and dreams Mm -hmm. that are then shattered by an idiot teenager who gets in deep with, uh, with drug dealers. In a total swerve, right? That feels a little racist. And contrived. 
I don't even need this movie to be didactic necessarily, but, you know, I don't need it to come out and give me a, a speech about how toxic masculinity is bad. It but can just it's kind of- being didactic, though, but about the wrong thing. Right? <laughs> so it ends up feeling like it has all these things that it's portrayed to a T in certain scenes that are very powerful, and then it just kind of motors along and focuses on the wallpaper instead about how Mike- doesn't know what he's doing and maybe is a fuck up, but he's a good man because he gave up his money to bail the kid out of trouble because he fucked up and lost a bunch of drugs because he went in with Tito. Uh-huh. And then he fucked it up by taking the drugs to a client's house and, and a sorority. Feeding them to a client's. There's so many lines crossed there mm-hmm. because he's also like making out with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, contrived is the word, because it's one of those things where it's not out of the question that something big would fuck up on the spiral that he's on, but the fact that we need it to go down like this and to happen so explosively. And ha- and the fact that it's, like, exactly enough to completely blow out all of Mike's savings and dreams that he's worked so hard on. And I guess there's something in there about how, you know, true positive masculinity is about being there for other people, even if a real man takes care of his family kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but that's, the, that's another thing, though, is it's still reinforcing that idea that the only positive function for a guy is not to be helped. It's only to be the dad and to sacrifice and work and not get appreciated. Yeah, and he doesn't say anything about it. The only reason that Well, that's straight out of Dirty Dancing. That that is literally just a thing from Dirty Dancing. To uh to do a a good heartfelt thing and then not tell anybody mm. until they find out later and then they feel like shit, don't they? Yeah, I could see it as a nod, but it does play with the toxic oh, masculinity a, weird. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a nod. I'm just saying that that's straight out of the Dirty Dancing playbook. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, they'll, then they'll feel sorry, won't they? The women's, who are always on your the case. The people who've judged me. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, so it, it doesn't actually resolve that toxic masculinity thing. What it resolves is the problem of, like, being involved in sex work. Yeah, because it treat she, she specifically becomes this mouthpiece for, you haven't gotten out of this because... You can't decide what you want to do and who you are, which is not his problem. He's trying really hard. It's just that sex work is devalued. And, and it's pa- it's post-2008 crash. And so we don't know what happened to his credit score. It's not explained. It doesn't matter. It's probably bad. he probably he had a credit card when he was 18 and stupid. And then the 2008 crash happened and he was stripping. And so he hasn't been able to build up a credit score again because mm-hmm. that shit's expensive and hard to do. <laughs> and he deals in cash. So there's no records of his finances. Like that all makes sense. But the fact that the solution is for him to quit doing sex work, have a monogamous heterosexual relationship and settle down here in Tampa with this nurse lady. Who does not seem to appreciate his furniture making that is his actual dream. Yeah, she just kind of rolls her eyes at it. Look, I'm not saying you have to be all in super excited, but like, maybe you're a little enthusiastic about something that somebody really loves. Maybe you at least think that he could do that? (laughs) Or anything? Anything. It's so weird and weightless, and because I don't buy that this is a happy ending for him, the entire movie feels pointless with that ending. There's a reason why it was so easy to write her out with a note on on an ice cream container and the second one. Yeah, I completely buy that he tried to propose and she was just like, nah, I'm out. I graduated. Yeah, bye. And, like, the fact that he has to go back and reconnect with all the other guys and and actually actively do that because, yeah, it does feel like she would cut him off from his friendships because she would consider them part of this sort of inchoate mass of the stripping and treat it like an addiction that he has to go cold turkey on. Yeah, there is definitely some subtext not really developed there of her being potentially a social climber you know, respectability. And just, she has contempt for 
what he does and people like that. So even if we buy that she comes to see him as an individual, yeah, I think that there's a likelihood that would say, well, you have to be away from those people Mm -hmm. if you're going to go straight now. (laughs) And all of those vibes really undermine the fact that there is poignancy to be had in a story about a career that by its nature has an expiration date you know sports exotic strip uh exotic dancing dance in general ballet there is an intensity to those career paths because you're gonna hit a certain point and just not be able to do it anymore and a lot of times that means you make bad drastic decisions and that's great fuel for narrative but it's so tied up in the simultaneous we gotta put a bow on this and, and like simultaneously being like it is wrong to shame and objectify people and treat them like they're stupid just because of their job but also he is kind of a slut isn't he hmm. yeah if he would just straighten up and only dance for me that'd be okay it's very and, confused <laughs> yeah and especially since we get that extremely cathartic dance sequence where he's where we see what dance does for him mm-hmm. at a very basic level when when he actually does it creatively and expresses that through his body and really feels that again i think this is where the second movie sort of really opens that up cuz we one of the first things that happens in the second movie is he he does just privately in his own workshop a sequence to pony and it's his signature great. song just for himself mm-hmm. and you can tell that it's something he hasn't done in a while that he hasn't had that yeah he hasn't allowed himself the joy of that because it is a shameful thing he associates yeah and so the second movie is just so much about healing and uncoupling all of those different elements that have gotten intertwined yeah and just regaining the joy of this thing you've spent your whole life loving even though it's you know the big last show before he really goes into craftsmanship full-time yeah and even though it is still coupled up with all of these bad decisions you made, things that hurt you, that's changed maybe your relationship with sexuality and and interacting with people and genders and stuff. Now you really understand why she was so pissed at him though, right? Yup. <laughs> you left her for Dallas. Bruh. You fucked up <laughs> bad. Yeah, and you know what you know what else XXL doesn't have? A fucking piss filter. Oh, the piss filter. I hate the piss filter. I love that about ten minutes into the movie, you were like, is this yellow filter going to go away? And the answer, listeners, was no. No, it's like watching a movie through Piss Christ. It does go away for certain scenes, like in the club or in certain interior spaces, but every time you're outside in the Florida heat, back on the piss filter, because it gives it a throwback feel, I guess. It's like if every scene in Cabaret was blue, except when she's on stage. I hate it. I hate it. It's distracting. It doesn't achieve it doesn't achieve the thematic vibe he's going for. I want to throttle it. It's extremely distracting, and your lighting decision should not be distracting like that in a non-Brechtian context. Yeah, and I I think that it's supposed to make us think of like dirty 70s cinema. Like it's supposed to feel sleazy. Because it's also got that sort of grainy filter to it. Makes sense. And yet it's not there. It's not there for the allegedly sleazy scenes, which I guess maybe that's the deep meaning that it's the real world that's fucking him over financially that is the sleazy part. But I feel like that's being generous. Yeah. It's a frustrating movie, isn't it? It is. I don't dislike it having watched the second one first. I find it kind of interesting and I feel I'm able to appreciate the scenes that do work because the sequel is right there. But if I'd just seen it on its own, I think I would fucking hate it. Uh huh. Yeah. By itself, it is doing a lot of very uncomfortable, harmful things, really. Mm -hmm. Although it does also simultaneously make me uncomfortable that even before the second movie came out, this movie did spawn a bunch of live reviews. There are Magic Mike strip shows in the same way that there are Chippendales or Thunder Down Under. Which is weird because the Kings of Tampa are not... good that interesting no like they're all just doing standard bits this movie played fucking save a horse ride a cowboy and i was immediately 
thrown back in time to the mid-2000s and that inescapable jackhammer in my brain. I hate that song. I hate that song. It's not because it's the worst song ever to be written, but because it heralded the The dial going up to 11 on douchey bro country. Country used to be a lady genre. Mm -hmm. Laments about shooting dudes. And, like, it was already getting extremely doodly by the early 2000s. But then along came Save the Horse, Ride a Cowboy, which has the wonderful lyric, I don't need your Escalade or your Freak Parade. I'm the only John Wayne left in this town. I fucking hate that song. And it was everywhere. I couldn't get away from it. Yeah, I think the only one worse than that from that same era would have to be Honky Donk. Badonkadonk. Yes. She's got it going on like Donkey Kong. And the descent of country into bro country and its relationship to 9-11 is a story for another day, but... I mean, we can sum it up with the words Toby Keith. But yeah, and then it got worse. Fuck that guy. And the Dixie Chicks tried so hard. They tried so hard, and frankly, I hope they're having a nice day. No, they're the chicks now. They fixed it. They fixed it. Yeah. I hope they're having a nice time. Yeah. I I think they are. Good. Finally. But yeah, it's just... They have a very bog standard review is the thing. And again, granted, that's probably part of the thing is they've got these pie in the sky dreams of how we're going to go to Miami and really show them something and make it big. With the heavy implication that they will not. They will not. Like they do an It's Raining Men number. (laughs) It's extremely uninspired. Yeah, it's fine. And everybody is just doing sort of a standard bit. You know, you've got your fireman bit. You've got the phrase, I have a fire phobia, is still the funniest fucking... <laughs> it's a good fucking joke. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, that phobias suck, but also, who doesn't? <laughs> Especially the fire going off in your face in a very small and unsafe looking club. I, I think I would recommend this movie to people ex- specifically interested in portrayals, interesting portrayals of toxic masculinity, but otherwise, definitely the sequel is the way to go if you're only going to watch one. Yeah, if you're just going to watch one, the sequel is so good about sort of unpacking. But this one really is dead on about how that gets all packed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how the baggage gets there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm glad I had fun talking about it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting watch. I'm glad I revisited it after all this time. Because, you know, I saw it the once and I was like, that is enough. I mean, it's on, it's streaming on HBO. You have to pay for it if you don't have HBO. Which is kind of a pain. But if you didn't have to pay for it, eh, it's, it's there. It's an hour and 50 minutes, which is too long. But what are you going to do? Yeah. And, you Interestingly know, pairs with And not showgirls. a terrible way to uh, head into Pride. Yeah. With this extremely beefy men's and alleged bisexual. <laughs> the sequel is also much more willing to play with queerness. Mm-hmm. Which I appreciate. Like, the homoeroticism is... Much more present. Strong. Strong, good, positive. <laughs> like it. Good times. Man, that movie's good. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't cover with this one? Um. Should we do Sex, Lies, and Videotape, listeners? Would you like us to traumatize you with that? Oh, boy. <laughs> we can put it on the list. Yeah, otherwise I think that about wraps us up on this one. Thank you so much for bearing with us and the weird scheduling things. Like said, uh, we had COVID and then we had vaccines and it's just been a hellish couple of months. We're trying to keep on top of things. And as always, we thank you for your patience. Yeah. Should we let people be in suspense about Pride Month this year? All right. Yes, as usual, we will be doing a historical review, and I think beyond that, it can be a fun surprise. <laughs> In the meantime, if you liked this, you can find us on SoundCloud or your podcaster of choice by searching for Trash and Treasures. We'd love it if you'd leave a four-star rating or review, because it helps folks find us. You can also go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash trashandtreasures. We don't need it to stay alive, but it does help us to source rare pieces of media, including a piece uh, upcoming for Pride, which is going to be pretty exciting. And we have both a recipe guide from our drunk book clubs, and in theory, we have bonus episodes. I'm working on it. I am again. So sorry. (laughs) I am also extremely sorry about that. It has been... You You had an extremely big test for school. 
that got postponed because I was sick, which means that then the extremely big test was overlapping with just normal school stuff and teaching. It's been a lot. That's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Mm -hmm. You can also email us. Uh, We love getting mail. We are at trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. We actually did get an email this week uh, from Cassandra. I will not read out your last name because I don't know if you want me to. Uh, But bless you for sending us a photo of that fake DVD case that we talked about in our Valentine's Day episode that says contains depictions of alternate lifestyles. (laughs) It's real and it exists, people. (laughs) I think we were all a little bit traumatized by seeing that (laughs) as as tiny baby queers. By seeing those depictions of alternate lifestyles? Yeah, that was what was traumatizing. (laughs) And also, thank you for the correction. I I went and double-checked this. So my confusion was there was an allegedly non-pornographic cut of Boku no Pico. That exists, but it did not get licensed. What did get licensed- What is it, four minutes long? I assume. <laughs> but what did get licensed, uh, as Cassandra points out, was uh, Papa to Kiss in the Dark, which is a Shotokan incest porn. And if you go, there is a still archived- uh, Do not go- do not go. But you can go to Anime Boston's website and but find... don't go. <laughs> and, and just find an, an archived panel description where they showed that in a panel hall. On purpose, just to a group of people. To a group of people, not with a description that extremely does not indicate that it is an incest for. <laughs> so that's, that's not fun. funny. That's not funny. It's, it's a little funny, it's but funny. only because it's horrible. It's only funny because I'm over here. Mm-hmm. I am not looking at it. And anime conventions even a decade ago were fucked up. Uh-huh. So that's a fun fact. This is why emails are fun. Yep. <laughs> you can also get a hold of us on social media. We are on Twitter at TrashPod and we are on Tumblr at Trash and Treasures Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait for Pride. It is both the most grueling and most rewarding part of the year. And if you want on our SoundCloud, you can check out a playlist that is just our previous Pride episodes. I truly love them. I think it's some of the best stuff we do. So here's to that. And thanks to all of you listeners. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye, y'all. 